Guys, let's, uh, let's pray and get into the Word together. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you that we can be in your Word together as a church to grow from it, to learn, to really be, in a, be absorbed in it, because we know that uh, you will do uh, the work of making us your holy people, of sanctifying us, of making us like your Son. And uh, we can take great comfort, confidence in that. So we commit this time to you and uh, ask that you would be with us, give us wisdom to understand your word, all for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Second Peter. Book of Second Peter. We will continue our study. I think we're in, by my latest reckoning, we are in message number four. In our new study of this book, having done First Peter before it, passage for this morning is going to begin in verse 5, and since we're going to treat this passage as a unit, we won't get through all the verses today, but we'll get through a couple of them. But because it's a unit, we will read through verse 11. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Please follow along. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. A really wonderful text uh, for us that will uh, undergird our study for the next, I would say, at least two or three weeks. We'll get through the first couple of verses this morning, just knowing our, knowing our limitations here and knowing what we are likely to get through. Uh, our goal today is to make it through uh, verse 7, through this uh, ladder, if you will, this grouping of, of characteristics of godliness. So we will concentrate on, on this this morning. Uh, when it comes to characteristics of godliness, uh, this is a familiar uh, Sight in Scripture, especially the New Testament, it is not uncommon for the apostles to draw the attention to their audience and say, okay, now that this is so, pursue this. And more often than not, it's more than one thing. It's a group of things. One of the most familiar grouping of, if we want to call it Christian virtues, is found in Galatians chapter 5. We are familiar with Paul's fruit of the Spirit. It was part of our scripture reading this morning. There is a, a, a cluster of fruits, a, a grouping of particular Christian characteristics that we are to pursue and that we are to grow in the power of God's Spirit and not our own works. We recognize it all as a, a work of grace. And so Peter does a similar thing here. And, there's, and there is some overlap, of course, between what Peter says and what Paul says, and neither list is exhaustive, but you do get the point. These are things that all Christians, all churches, corporately, are to pursue and grow in together. And what we want to do this morning, especially in, in going over this list, is, is not only understand what they are uniquely, but also how they fit together. It is clear from Peter's wording that they fit together. If you notice, when you look in the passage, he says, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and so on and so forth. So we find these things uh, relating to one another. They do not stand isolated or apart from one another. As Peter mentions these in the same uh, fashion as Paul, we don't look at Christian virtues as something to be uh, pursued simply individually or unrelated to other Christian virtues. We, we pursue them all at once. We see them as related to one another. We don't take something like 
knowledge and wait until we master it to pursue self-control. No, you, can, you cannot pr- pursue self-control if you don't know what self-control is. So all of these things hinge on one another and they, and they speak to one another. They, they modify one another to give us a clear understanding of how they are supposed to operate in the life of the believer. Now, if you notice uh, when Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit, he begins with love. We could see love is the, the crown of Christian virtues. Really, that, is, that should be the most obvious, outstanding thing when it comes to being a Christian. If you claim to know God, if you claim that you are in Christ, you should love. You should be known by your love. Right? In 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, we read, "...but the goal of our instruction," says Paul, "...is love from a pure heart." from a good conscience and a sincere faith. So rising up from all of those things, a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith is love. That is the goal of teaching. That is the goal of preaching the Gospel as it pertains to the life of the church. We teach the Scriptures so that you may be transformed by it, so that you may love God and love your brothers. And even, I would say, have a a love for the world in the sense that you pursue preaching the Gospel to them. You pursue them redemptively. Right? And so in here, Peter seems to fashion it as, as sort of the, the heart, really the heart of, of spiritual growth. Remember, the theme of Second Peter is growing in true grace. And it seems at the heart of growth, because note his use of in this, in this, in this, in this, and then the last in is love. That is really the heart of spiritual growth. It's to what all of these things will ultimately uh, point to. Uh, some people mention it as a, as a chain. Uh, Barclay describes it as a, a ladder of virtues, at the top of which is love, the most prominent, the most put on display. And no matter how you slice it, it is true that love must come to be a very identifiable part of church life and of church growth. Now, all of these things matter, but they point to love. A love for God and a love for your neighbor, a love for others. Speaking of Barclay's ladder illustration, you think of what makes a really good ladder is that no one part of that ladder is meant to support all of the weight. When you climb, whether you're climbing up or down, the other pieces of the ladder are meant to share the load, share, share the burden. That, that the ladder is operate, that all parts of the ladder are in some way operational during its use. So again, there's a lot of illustrations we can use. And you know, you think about at some point analogies, illustrations break down. I was trying to think of one. I kept I actually kept coming back to this one. Is that in this text, spiritual growth acts some, somewhat like a song, like a good song, right? There's, there are particular things when it comes to playing music or, or playing an instrument that culminates into a really good song. Now, this is by no means an, an exhaustive list, but this is more, more or less of the background, right? If, we, if you are to compose a song, there are certain things that background things, fundamental things that need to be in place in order for a good song to result. But I mean, really, a passage like this should be music to our soul. There is something that is very, that is very active, right? very dynamic about the presence of Christian growth to where we look at virtues like this and we never want them to grow stagnant. We never want them to be ignored. We never want any of these things to be compartmentalized or marginalized to the point where we ignore them. You know, we talked about that, if you remember, and you can go back, it's a good resource, because we took them one at a time, but in our study of Paul's Fruit of the Spirit, we actually used the illustration of comb over Christianity, where we would use excelling in one particular virtue, say patience, to cover over a lack of love or a lack of gentleness, right? So we sacrifice other uh, areas of Christian growth to get no- to, to be noticed or to be given attention for our excelling in one, and so a passage like this reminds us and encourages us, but it doesn't work that way. Our, the Christian is to pursue excelling in all of these things, paying attention to each of them. 
so that even when you emerge strong or mature in one of these, you still pursue excellence in them and you pursue excellence in other virtues as well. So they all, they all play a part in spiritual growth. So we could call this sermon title, Playing the Miracle, as if we are moving, as it were, to the music of salvation. A, a beautiful symphony that is descriptive of spiritual growth. Because let me, let me tell, tell you this, when, as it comes to the growth of the church, this should be a beautiful thing. There, this, there should be something attractive and lovely about the church continuing to grow in grace. We should, we should desire to listen to it. We should desire to be exposed to it. To really give it the honor and appreciation that it is due because ultimately it is a work of God and not man. So it deserves that attention and honor. So, playing the miracle. The song of spiritual growth. And we're going to look at three fundamental keys a couple of them might not be what you expect, but again, we talked about there's background. There are background things that must occur in order for us to listen to this song clearly, in order to even produce the music of spiritual growth. So let's get into the text together. So let's look at verse 5. Peter begins this way. And just to, just to remind you, the first two points will be very short. It is the third point that will, be, that will comprise the bulk of our study this morning. So Lord willing, we'll get through all of it. But verse 5, now for this very reason also. Okay, so what's the first ingredient? Is incentive. No music's going to play if there's no reason to play any music. First thing the church needs is incentive. Right? We need a reason. The church, the people of God have always needed motivation. We've always needed to look to something to provide sort of a foundation of why we even do the things we do. Why do we believe the gospel? Why do we, why do we grow in grace? Right? Why, do we, why, are we, why do we love one another? Right? What makes them even possible? See, all of these things we must consider before we even get to the work, the investment of spiritual growth. We need incentive. So that's why Peter says, for this very reason. And so we look back. Well, what reason, Peter? We look back and we see the basis and motivation of the Christian pursuing spiritual growth and maturity. For this reason also. Okay, so in verses 1 through 4, we covered two very essential themes. I mean like bedrock themes that pertain to actually growing in Grace, growing in the true grace of God, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first was what Christ must be, right? What, what must Christ be in order for the church to grow? How must he be presented, right? How must, how must he be acknowledged by the, what must he be acknowledged by the church biblically in order for us to grow spiritually? And of course, it was, it was that Christ must be proclaimed. That is, we must, we must preach Him, right? We must make Him known. Right. Secondly, Christ must be believed. We don't, he, it's one thing to proclaim Christ. It's one thing to hear Him proclaim. It's quite another to actually believe what is said about Him. Right. He must be believed. Thirdly, He must be known. Right. He must be known personally. Right. An intimate relationship whereby we walk with Him and grow in love for Him. And then verses 3-4, through four, who Christ must be. And, and as we described it, who Christ must be is the, is the portion in this passage where it describes how Christ relates to us. How Christ presents Himself to the church. Who Christ is for His people. He is the Christ of power. He is the Christ of praise. He is the Christ of promise. He's the Christ who dwells with His people. And He is the Christ who delivers His people. All of these things must be experienced by the church in order for us to grow. The fact is, is we must get Jesus right before we're going to get anything else right. We must understand our Savior rightly. And fundamental in that, in, that, in, that, in those opening verses, is that Christ has given Himself to us. He has drawn near and has shared His life with us so that we can partake of the divine nature. That is why that truth is so precious. 
It's the most precious truth of all that God in Christ has drawn near and has given Himself to us so that we may enjoy Him, so that we may worship Him, so that we may know Him. All of that and more is wrapped up in that. That is our very incentive. If we, if, if we miss 1 Peter 2 or 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4, we will have very little grounding for what comes ahead. We must know what Jesus is and who Jesus is. And now that we do, because the, because the Bible tells us so, we can move on to the finer points of growing in grace. So that's the incentive. So what more motivation do we need to grow than who Christ is? We have it all right there. So keeping those things in mind, we then grow. Secondly, we have the investment. Right? That's the second part of playing the miracle, is the investment. You think about, on one hand, who's paying for all this, right? But, but it speaks more. It speaks more to our, our commitment, how we invest our time. Look at what Peter says in this passage, in verse 5. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence, right? Applying all diligence. You could also read the word there, supply as well. That, that plays into it. We are to apply all diligence. So that is, that is the degree of the investment. How invested are we? Well, we are to apply all diligence. Not partial diligence. This isn't a side hustle, spiritually speaking. It isn't a hobby. This is a primary focus of, of the Christian life. To apply all diligence. To commit ourselves totally to it. I'm reminded of what Paul tells Timothy regarding his relationship to the Scriptures. He says, study them. Be absorbed in them, right? Take in all that you can so that you will be fully equipped to be an effective minister to God's people. So he says, applying all diligence. So there's some interesting uh, background here as it pertains to the Greco-Roman culture in which Peter is writing. So this applying comes from the expression, I'll try to get the Greek here, right? But epicora gesete, right? So keep that. That's, that's the word of the day, epicora gesete. So in Greek culture, there was something called a choregos. And who this person was, was a benefactor. We get the word chorus from this, hence the play on words, the song. So this was a, the choregos was a benefactor who would help fund what was called Greek choruses. Now, Greek choruses weren't, aren't quite the same of what we understand as a choir today or a chorus where there's, sev where there's several voices only singing. A chorus in Greek culture was a side commentary explaining what was going on in a, in a play. So you would have the play actors up there, and then you would have multiple side voices explaining what was going on. Often there would be an explanation of, of the moral lesson of the story that was being played out. And often it would be, the commentary would include song, dance, recitation, many voices together that were explaining this play. This could represent a huge group. And so what the Choregos did is he became the benefactor in that he funded a lot of what happened in that play at his own expense. So you could say he had skin in the game, right? It was out of, out of his own kindness, out of his own goodness, to, that, where he would, he would apply or supply everything that was needed for the play to be done well and for the play to be done in a complete and excellent fashion. But it came from, but, 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 it, but he, he uh, played the part of someone who was, who was generous and gave what was needed for the play to go on. You could apply the same, uh, this, this same office in terms of outfitting an army. You sent out an army, you wanted to make sure that the army was equipped. You didn't want to send them out barefoot or without their sword and buckler, right? So you, you would supply, you would be a, a choregos in terms of supplying them everything they need so that they could go out and fight well and be victorious. So all of that goes in to this applying all diligence, right? That is the commitment. That is the investment that that we make, and it's easy to see what's going on here spiritually, but there's, there's no room for, for half measures when it comes to applying diligence in spiritual growth. Right. When you apply it, you are committed. 
So what are we committed in? We are committed, Peter says, in diligence. We apply diligence. Of course, how do we understand what diligence is? I mean, there is a particular uh, prolonged uh, focus on pursuing something, right? That is what it means to be diligent, to be, to be undistracted, right? To, be, to have your undivided attention shown towards something so as to gain a proper understanding or even expertise in that activity. This is a timely reminder for the church because diligence is a skill, I think, that is lacking today. We have distractions of all kinds. And when it comes to spiritual growth, I would say even mediocrity itself has become the new gold standard to perform our, our spiritual duties in Christ just enough, right, where we're not seeing excellence as the goal. Right? We're saying just enough and no more. And we, we are easily content with the things that we are doing. And this is not to impose upon you some, some burden that is contrary to Scripture. But it is to say that we are, called, we are called to diligence. We are called to exert ourselves in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit's power is, at, is truly at work and applied with diligence, mediocrity will not be the result. Nor do we desire that. We are diligent. And diligence always carries with it a goal of excellence, a goal of maturity, and a goal to see fruitfulness. To be diligent means to be focused continually on the task at hand and to see that task completed well. To be diligent also means to prioritize those things which matter the most, right? We are diligent in something. We understand that that thing is meaningful. It is important. It is worth our time, our thinking, our prayer, even our money to a degree. Right? You think about what it takes to master an instrument. You know, my kids are taking guitar lessons right now, and we go every week. I make them practice. Right? Maybe, they, maybe they, don't, they don't have much incentives right now, but they don't need it because I'm making them play. I require them to practice because I want them to be diligent in their study of music. And that takes a time investment. Diligence also includes another important thing. It means, to, it means actually to do something in haste. To be diligent with spiritual growth means to not put it off. It means to give quick attention to it. To say that time is of the essence. And I don't want to waste time. So this cannot be put off. We see this word for diligence used in Luke one thirty nine, where it describe, actually describes Mary, the mother of Jesus, as going in a hurry, post-haste, to see Elizabeth just after the angel Gabriel visited her. She did not delay. So it's key that we understand the place of diligence. Diligence as opposed to complacency. Diligence as opposed to laziness. Diligence as opposed to distraction or simply not caring about the things of God. But rather to throw ourselves in them with full trust in the work of Christ that He will bring about a harvest in due time as we commit ourselves to it. So that's so that's the investment, right? That's the investment. And thirdly, I think most significantly in our passage today, is the instrument. And there are several instruments being played, and they all form together to make a beautiful symphony, a beautiful song, all playing in harmony with one another. So let's look at the text again. Verse 5, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, this is where it begins. It begins with faith. And we, can, and we can understand faith as trust in Christ. So this is not the body of faith or the body of doctrine that we believe, though that is found elsewhere in the New Testament. When it comes to faith in this context, Peter is simply em emphasizing a starting point. This is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ alone. That is the obedience of faith, the response that we have toward the gospel when we are regenerated. We trust in Christ, placing all of our hope, placing our entire eternity on Him. See, as necessary and vital as spiritual growth is, it is never done apart from faith. We pursue spiritual virtue apart from faith. We're putting the cart before the horse, but we're also going to make moralists out of ourselves. We're going to make legalists out of ourselves. We're going to want to do the good, but we're going to have no rhyme or reason. We're going to do the good, but we're going to do the good in our own strength. But no, this begins with faith. 
We don't do these things in our own strength. We do not pursue them with men as our standard. We do not pursue them with doubting hearts that refuse to fix themselves on Christ. Remember, you are justified by faith. You are also sanctified by faith. Remember, Paul ribbed the Galatians for this very thing. Are you trying to finish through the flesh what the Spirit began? Right? It's all of grace, and it's all through faith, including spiritual growth. Spiritual growth does not happen by obedience to the law, even though that can be a catalyst. But ultimately, spiritual growth rests in faith. It relies on the work of God. So never pursue these things that we are about to go over apart from a reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Never pursue these things without the truth of the Word, without time in prayer, and without time in the fellowship. Never pursue these things without acknowledging your dependence upon God Himself. So with faith as a foundation, faith acts as the stage, if you will. Faith is the stage. And to your faith, supply, here's where the instruments really begin, supply moral excellence. That's the first thing, moral excellence. Not moralism. We've talked about this word before, right? Supply moral excellence. does not mean that you are better than others at being a good person. You excel at being a good person. This could also be understood, this moral excellence, as virtue in general term that can relate to the rest of Peter's list because all of these things are, are virtuous things. But these, this moral excellence based on faith protects us from self-righteousness, protects us from moralism. And there is cultivated true virtue, true righteous affections, all geared toward pleasing God. Remember, earlier in this passage, we find that we are called by God's own excellence, His own glory and excellence, verse, verse 3, meaning that the fact that God has called us is a good and excellent thing. It is a glorious thing. We could say it is that which is worthy of honor and praise, and so it would follow in our pursuit to be like our Savior, we also, in expressing moral excellence, we want to do that which is worthy of honor and praise. Not a praise from man, but a praise coming from God, right? What matters is mo- mostly is what we do before God. This could be internal actions, it could be external actions. It can also speak of, of the courage that is required to do that which is right in spite of everyone else around you doing what is wrong. I mean, in the scheme of things, this is the Christian stepping up and answering the call to serve his Master. I was reminded this week that the church is not simply a hospital. The church is an army, Right? It's the Lord's army. And like a worthy and loyal soldier, we commit ourselves to excelling in righteousness. Because God is righteous. Because Christ is righteous, and we desire to do that which is righteous. And so here we come to the next one. In your moral excellence. It's not a naive kind of moral excellence. In your moral excellence, supply knowledge. So what do you know? We have knowledge here mentioned for the third time already. It's going to be mentioned very soon again. Five verses into 2 Peter, knowledge is mentioned for the third time. So we understand this knowledge, a transforming knowledge. A knowledge that transforms, a knowledge that increases, a knowledge that seeks God. Remember, not random isolated facts, but the knowledge of God. right? A personal, intimate knowledge. We seek Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, Christ is the objective when it comes to true knowledge, when it comes to knowing God, a knowledge that is distinct from, from human philosophy, from that kind of earthly speculation. This knowledge is life-giving, life-saving, and life-transforming. We're told in the Scriptures that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You think you know anything? Do you fear the Lord yet, right? <laughs> Do you have a, a holy terror that leads you to cling to God? Because if you do, then you finally know something. Again, knowledge can't be underestimated. I think sometimes we do that. We do just that very thing, but it is key to growing spiritually. And I would say perhaps one of the most neglected things in the church when it comes to its spiritual growth and stability is this thing called knowledge. We underestimate its impact in the life of the church, but knowledge is key. I think that so much of the professing church today is stricken with sort of this anti-intellectual disposition. 
we are inclined away from increasing knowledge, even the knowledge of God. I think culturally the church is enduring a time where we care much more for inclusivity and making sure people feel validated and accepted. Being very careful not to offend anyone, right? Being careful not to make anyone mad. I mean, let me tell you, nothing is more angering than the truth, than to confront someone with the truth of their unbelief and the truth that they do not know God. Right? That really is what it comes down to. You know, numerous times I've talked about this, about the greatest challenge facing the church today, internally at least, is our inability and at best our hesitancy to take correction, and that is correction from Scripture. I think one of the reasons is because we just don't have knowledge of what God has said, right? We don't know what God has said in His Word. We don't take Him at His Word because we don't know what His Word says. We don't know what His Word says because we're not in the Word, right? What we want to do is refrain from raising another generation of men and women who are biblically illiterate, who don't know the Scriptures, We want to raise another generation who believes the Scriptures and who loves the Scriptures, who recognizes the voice of God when He speaks through His Word or through the preacher as He is expositing the Word. We don't want to live in this paradigm forever where there's just no knowledge of God. There is a change of paradigm, right? I think what this means, based on what my old pastor used to say, is that we don't want to think along the lines of what, is, what works and what makes me feel good. We call that emotion and pragmatism, right? It's not about that. It's not about what works and what makes me feel good, which is what so many in the church are asking these days when it comes to what, what is going on up here. Did what the pastor or preacher say, is it work? Is it, does it work? Is it helpful? Does it, does it give me good vibes? Does it make me feel good? Instead of, and where we need to be, this paradigm is, is it true and is it right? (laughs) Has God said it? Is it true and is it right? That's the paradigm that the church must re-embrace. That is a paradigm which treasures the knowledge of God and which teaches the knowledge of God. In which the knowledge of God is at home. We don't want to be stuck in that other realm where we simply filter what the Word of God says through our feelings and through what we believe might be practical, what we think may work. I think another reason that we struggle with knowledge of God is that we have confined knowledge as something for the spiritual, spiritually elite. Oh, I'm not a theologian like that guy. Oh, I haven't been to seminary like that guy. Or you're smart. Right? It's not what it's about, guys. God has revealed Himself to us. He has made Himself known through His Word. So even the most apparently unintelligible person can understand the Gospel. Can have a true and saving knowledge of God. Why? Because it is God that does the work. It's God that does the work. It's God who ultimately makes us understand His Word. It is a Word given to all of His people. See, it's not... Something, knowledge of God is not something only for a limited spiritual elite. I mean, this is what is, this is precisely the problem that Peter is dealing with, right? When false teachers comes in, they come in, they claim a special inside knowledge that is available only to them, right? And only by them. That if you really want to know, if you want to deepen your relationship of the, uh, with God or deepen your knowledge of the truth, you have to come to me. Peter's saying this is something that should be common to every believer and to every church. That the knowledge of God is for everyone who is in Christ. The knowledge of God is immensely practical. See, we wonder why there is so much dysfunction and chaos in many people's lives, even those who claim Christ. And the answer is simple, is that there is no knowledge of God. And if there is a cursory knowledge of Him, there is not one that is actively growing and applied to every area of life. You could really say that even within the professing church, there is a hatred of knowledge. There is a disdain for it. That if you pursue knowledge, that somehow you think you are superior. No, we pursue knowledge because to know God is to love Him. To know God is to delight in Him, right? We want to know God. We should be be supernaturally inclined to know Him and to be in His Word and to listen to His voice. 
Listen to what Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You are a fool if you do not want to know God. I mean, that's Scripture's judgment. That's Scripture's reckoning. I think there is an unjust judgment even in the church of those who have made knowledge of God their life's pursuit. Once again, that if you know God, if you know the Scriptures, that somehow you believe you're better than everyone else. You're not better than everyone else. You're just better off. If you know, if you know the Lord, if you walk with Him, yes, you are in a good place. Because other things will grow as well in addition to that. It's an admirable thing, something worthy of pursuit, something worthy of honor. In 1 John, we read this, I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. Right? These are the mature in the church. And they know God. They have a full knowledge, a mature knowledge of God. Even the Lord tells us, blessed are those who know the Word of God and do it. You can't obey. You can't respond to what you don't know. So knowledge is so key. Don't be like those in the book of Proverbs who mourn for lack of knowledge. Don't be like Israel who, as God's people, perish for lack of knowledge. Listen to Proverbs 5, 11 through 14 Because this is the end of the person who does not treasure knowledge of God. And you will groan in the end when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I hated instruction and my heart disdainfully rejected rebuke. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers nor incline my ear to my instructors. I was almost in total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Wow. The end, the end phase, right? The dying breath of one who does not know God, who would not listen to those who proclaim the truth. See, but we should not only seek to know God, but we should like it. We should delight in the knowledge of God. To love His Word. To enjoy it. Listen to what Michael Kruger says. Christianity is not just intellectually defensible, but also intellectually satisfying at the deepest of levels. Yes, we believe God with our hearts, but we can also enjoy Him with our minds. Well, I think, I think something like that would totally transform the church. We would see such a mighty work within the church if we loved God with our mind and if we enjoyed Him on the intellectual level. I mean, our hearts belong to Him, right? Let's commit our minds to Him as well. I mean, even Jeremiah 9.24 says this, but let the one who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises mercy, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You see, this person who knows God and boasts the knowledge of God does not know God in some vague sense. He knows that God is particular things. He knows, he knows particular characteristics of God, mercy, justice, and righteousness. Right? Because God has disclosed that to him. And furthermore, God delights in those things. God loves those things, so, so should we. We should love mercy, justice, and righteousness and desire that those things be executed on the earth. That is knowledge. That's not all there is to say about knowledge, but it'll fulfill our purposes for this morning. And then he adds this, and in your knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control. Of course, self-control, one of the fruits of the Spirit, is to be able to exercise complete control over one's desires and actions. There's an internal and external aspect of this. One man says that to exercise self-control may require an idiomatic equivalent. For example, to hold oneself in, to command oneself, or to be a chief of oneself, or to make one's heart be obedient. Another one, to be the master of what one wants, or to say no to one's body. So self-control is quite comprehensive. It governs all of life. So again, to be self-controlled is not merely resisting sin and temptation, but also positively, it is to live obediently. It is a demonstration that it really is the Holy Spirit that, it is, that is in control and not you. Of course, this is set against the lack of self-control of false teachers in this very book. In chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, Many will follow their indecent behavior, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. See, false teachers... One thing they do not have is self-control. They take advantage of the flock and look to get all that they can get from them to exploit the people of God so that they can enrich themselves. They are reckless and self-centered. Right? Face this challenge. It's a challenge for the church today. Always has been. 
See, as a rebellious society, one that does not honor God continues to get more and more degenerate, there is an increasing approval of letting it all hang out, right? There's barely any honor of being able to control one's passions. It's, oh, look at this man's passion. Yeah, he got angry, he lost self-control, but he was just expressing himself. How beautiful that was. A right? A beauty in the chaos rather than a beauty in order, right? A beauty in shalom, we could say. See, who are we to condemn that? How dare we? And so, people act accordingly in purport, according to how accepted it becomes. And secondly, as we even see our own government and social structures enact certain laws and mandates, we become accustomed to bristling against anything that would try to exert authority over us. Sometimes it backfires because we want to be under God's authority. And so when we see tyranny at work, sometimes we may you know, take, take a broad brush to it and, and, and rebel against any authority. No, the, the, the issue is submitting to the right authority, to the biblical authority, to the authority that is Christ Himself as our Lord and Savior and King. So lack of self-control, furthermore, is, a descript, is descriptive of the increasing godlessness of man. Even Timothy in his own time was warned by Paul that men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, right? Completely given over to fleshly passions, brutal and haters of good. See, this isn't just describing things that are unique to today. This, this, has been hap- this was happening in the first century. I think we just... I think we're exposed to it more because of mass media and various other things. Because people just can't help themselves. People love to glory in their own filth. And lacking self-control is seen as virtuous. But for the Christian, self-control is to be everywhere. It is to characterize all of the Christian life. Think about the way we think. Self-control in our thinking. And you say, well... I can't control what I think. Well, the Scripture says, yes, you can. And the Scripture commands us how we are to think. In Philippians 4, we read this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and there is, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Dwell. Fix your mind on these things. He's telling us what, what to think. And if we know what to think, we will know how to think. See, we have the Scriptures that inform our thinking. We have the Holy Spirit that enables us to bring every thought captive in obedience to Christ. That is God's ministry of grace to us is we have self-control in our thinking, in our behavior. That is, over, even over our own bodies. Romans 6, 12-13 says this, Therefore sin is not to reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. See, before we couldn't help it. And do not go on presenting the parts of your body as sin to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead, and your body's parts as instruments of righteousness for God. See, the body isn't evil. The body is corrupted, but the body is not evil. If we are redeemed, if we are in Christ, and the Spirit is within us, we are capable of using our earthly instruments as instruments of righteousness. So how we think, what we do, even our very will and affections, we read that God is at work in us both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Right. So even we want to do the things of God. And then, of course, continually following the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be self-controlled. It's a continual self-control. Ongoing. That's why Paul says to the Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. May the, may the Holy Spirit dominate your life. May everything be in submission to His leading and power. But there is no self-control. We'll link these two together. There is no self-control without knowledge. See, the knowledge of God and His Word is that which establishes the boundaries of Christian freedom. And so, self-control sort of abides by those boundaries. Self-control will be the manifestation of how the knowledge of God has come to govern and inform every area of life. Self-control also prevents us from being arrogant in knowledge. So instead of seeking how we can lord our knowledge over others, we use it to serve one another. We use it to disciple one another. 
to pass on truth, and to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Moving on, and in your self-control, perseverance. Oh, self-control must be continual. If we have self-control, we can persevere. Can't persevere, can't endure under the things that Peter is describing in this book without having self-control. Which again, perseverance, once again, things that in this book the false teachers did not have, if you read verses 20 through 22 of chapter 2, describes this very thing. This, this being delivered, at, seemingly delivered at one point, but then becoming slaves of corruption all over again. This is what separates the true from the false, is that the truth, the true will persevere, as opposed to these false teachers. Self-control will lead to perseverance. Self-control is not something we click on and off. We persevere in it. We endure. And we reject the demand as like the world does for instant gratifications and cling to the promises of everlasting joy. That's why we say our life in Christ indeed is an investment and perseverance is the instrument that we continually play. So we invest in the long-term good even though there are setbacks along the way. But the Christian, if he truly is in Christ, will not give up. And that is a distinguishing mark between the true believer and the merely professing believer. Think about this. Think about what Peter's audience was going through. You had scoffers, right? You had false teachers. You had persecution. You had scoffers. They were scoffing. And they were saying, where is the promise of His coming? Right there in chapter 3. Being laughed at. Being maligned. Made fun of. Rejected. You know, making... True believers in Christ think that they're the crazy ones for believing these promises of God. And yet, perseverance as an essential part of spiritual growth continues to rest in the promises of God. Even though others are saying, where's the promise? Nothing is changing. Things are continuing as they are. Christ will not judge. And apparently this teaching had gained some traction in all of these churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. It would be hard to endure in, a, in, a, in an environment like this. Hard to persevere. Hard to remain self-controlled. Constant temptation to run off and ultimately deny Christ. So self-control must persevere as we take this long view of redemption and live life as we are called to in all holiness and in all fear of the Lord. So perseverance is a staple of the redeemed life. We believe and teach that those who truly belong to Christ will persevere, and so we encourage one another to do the same, even through the various trials of life. Listen to what, listen to what Colossians 1, 22-23 says. Yet He has now reconciled you in His body of flesh through death in order to present you uh, before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. James reminds us of the same thing, right? Don't be a hearer merely who deludes himself, but be a doer of the Word, right? Look intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and continue in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an active doer. This person, James says, will be blessed in what he does. Jesus describes that same person, right? The person who builds his house on the rock. This is a continue building, continual building, an ongoing construction project. So that when the rains fall and the floods come and the winds blow and slam against the house, the house will not fall. Not because the materials were so sophisticated, but because of, where, uh, of what it was built upon. That is the rock. When we persevere, don't miss this, the reason we persevere is because God preserves us. Paul tells the Philippians, I am confident of this very thing. I think this is chapter 1, verse 6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it, by the day of Christ Jesus. He is faithful. He will do it, and we can rest in that. We persevere because God preserves us. We find this promise, one more verse, in John 6.39. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of everything that He has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. See, if you are Christ, He will not lose you. You, know, you, could, you could be the weakest sheep. But you have the strongest shepherd, a shepherd who will not ultimately fail you or lose you, but he will give you resurrection life. 
So that's how that works with perseverance. And in your perseverance, he says godliness. We're just mowing right through this. And your perseverance, godliness. See, there is a, there, within perseverance, we find this characteristic of godliness, a, a, a benefit that I believe with perseverance can, really cultivates itself and grows as a really outstanding part of Christian character. Perseverance, you know, we say, well, what is, does godliness produce perseverance or does perseverance produce godliness? Answer, yes. Play off each other, it's circular. But, but godliness is found in perseverance. We don't persevere, persevere for nothing. We look back and understand that it is mentioned already by Peter, God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And even though this word in the Greek is notoriously tra- difficult to translate, it's often rendered as piety or devotion, in the Christian life it's much more than being pious or religious in a vague sense. Godliness, we understand, friends, is God-likeness. Not that we are to become divine in and of ourselves, but as we partake of the divine nature, we manifest the very attitudes, deeds, and characteristics that are consistent with who God is. We should rejoice over that. Remember, it is a life by God, from God, in God, and for God. And so we would strive to live a life consistent with that, to, to develop a habit of godliness. In 1 Timothy 4.8, this is confirmed by Paul, but godliness is profitable for all things, right? Not just some things, but comprehensively. It is, it is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See, note the connection between that and what we read here in 2 Peter. In verse 11, we read, For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. That is the life to come. So godliness, listen to this, godliness speaks of a person whose life is Godward in every sense, that everything done is done with God's glory in mind. I want us to have this kind of attitude as a church and as individuals. This is the opposite of ungodliness. Ungodliness is one of those, according to Jerry Bridges, a respectable sin, one that we don't give a lot of attention to, one that we don't think is that bad. But godliness, in effect, ungodliness, in effect, is life lived as if God didn't exist, right? It's just doing things without God, right? You can, you can listen to a sermon without thinking about God. You can even sing the words on the screen without really thinking about God, without thinking of the import of that truth. So that is why when the Christian who lives a godly life lives not only like God exists, but, but, but lives life according to who God is, but He is Lord and King and Savior and deserves to be honored in every area of life. It is to have a God perspective of everything you do and say. It is to think, what does God say about this? Or, what does God think about this? How can God be known in this situation? And of course, perseverance is the most appropriate setting for this. Because we don't just persevere. We We persevere in godliness. We persevere in making God known and making God honored. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. So we'll add this. Within godliness, we find brotherly kindness. Second to last one. Godliness, we should know, is not stale. It is not, it is not without affections. Godliness does not operate in a vacuum. We say this because throughout church history, godliness in one way or another has been, I think, mistakenly uh, expressed or understood within the context of asceticism or monasticism. That this world and its lusts are far too polluting, far too challenging. I don't want to be defiled, so I'm going to sell everything I own and move out into the desert or move out into the wilderness and not have anything to do with anybody. Which is, ironically, godless. See, rigor, they would, the, 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 the viewpoint of this is that rigorous self-denial ends up taking them out of regular participation in the body of Christ. Even, even Paul says to the Colossians that this, this kind of life has the appearance of godliness, but really does nothing against the temptations of the flesh. It looks godly, but it really isn't. It's a counterfeit. So the pursuit of godliness without brotherly kindness can result in a private piety which views even other believers as potential contaminants rather than fellow members of the body of Christ to, to support and encourage and edify sort of really strikes down any temptation to the monastic life, which has only the appearance of godliness. What, what's another thing that this tells us that's very important? Is that godliness within the realm of spiritual growth is relational. 
We seek deliberately Christian relationships with other Christians. And that's why Peter says in your godliness, add brotherly affections, brotherly kindness. Right? It's part of the Christian life, guys. Something we shouldn't try to avoid. You know, as, as we say here, as we say in every membership class, Jeremy and I, we say, guys, don't make it weird. Stop making it weird. Come and be a part of the community of the believing, right? Come enjoy Christ with us. Warts and all, right? We all have our areas of weakness. We all have our areas where we're pursuing sanctification, but we all serve a perfect Savior. So let us gather together and put our attention on Him and not focus so hard on one another's foibles. We can, we can deal with that in due time, but what matters ultimately is that Christ is exalted in our midst. That's why Paul says to the Romans, Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, right? There is a devotion. There is a commitment to this. It is a way of life. Give preference to one another in honor. And other scriptures beside. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Hebrews 13.1 speak of this issue of brotherly kindness. Of course, the main thrust here very simply put, very simple application, is to treat the church like family. Why do we treat the church like family? Because we are family. Remember, we treat younger men as brothers, older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. We are in the family of God together. And with that understanding, we build godly long-term relationships. We establish trust. We serve one another. We show forgiveness. We help one another. Right? We practice the one another's. And this, of course, the advice stands contrary to how Peter exposes the false teachers plaguing these churches. If you look at chapter 2, verse 13, we read this, They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. See, adultery and brotherly kindness are incompatible. It says they never cease from sin. This isn't the way to treat your brother in Christ. This isn't the way to show brotherly affection. We show brotherly affection by treating one another righteously, rather than being always out to exploit and take advantage of people as opposed to serving them. So that is brotherly kindness. Finally, we come to the last one. We are going to get through this, ladies and gentlemen. And in your brotherly kindness, again, here is the crown jewel, the heart of everything, and in your brotherly kindness, love, right? Thinking. His first letter, Peter links this up nicely in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 22. He says this, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So he talks about this. You have consecrated, you have prepared your souls for brotherly kindness. Now out of that, fervently love one another from the heart. See, love is an attitude from the heart. It is an inner affection. So we come to love here, the chief and crowning virtue of the Christian, the most obvious indicator, as I've said before, that you truly belong to Christ. All men will know you're my disciples, Jesus says, if you love one another. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, right? Love is best defined and understood, I believe, as ultimately a devotion to God's glory and a personal delight in Him as the object of our highest joy and adoration, right? Love is not merely action, right? But it is affection. It comes from the inner man. An affection that delights in God and desires to see Him glorified. A love that is committed to that glory. A love that delights in Christ Himself. See, in the case of music, in the case of this performance of this beautiful song of sanctification, we could say that faith is the stage. And if faith is the stage, love is the melody. Love is the melody. The main line of the song, the thing that draws our attention in the most, the, the heart and soul of the song. See, what would brotherly kindness and Christian fellowship be without true Christ-like love at its core? See, even in showing brotherly kindness, there must be an underlying motivation to pursue the highest good of other brothers in Christ. So there is that delight, that duty of delight toward God, devotion to Him, but when it pertains to godly love toward our brother, it is a pursuit of the highest good, which of course means that together we are helping one another be more like Jesus. That is love, I think, most sincerely expressed. Helping one another become more like Christ, even if that comes at a personal expense, at personal sacrifice. Remember, there, there, there are many times, and we see them today and back then, 
that identifying yourself as belonging to the body of Christ was a dangerous thing. Because you're saying, I, am, I not only love Jesus, but I also love all who follow him. Right? I love all who believe in him. Beloved, John says, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. See, God is the standard, the ultimate way in which we are to understand love. For God is love. Right? So whether all, the, all, these, all these instruments right, play their part, but love ultimately is the melody, and these other divine instruments are those instruments which lend their support to love, but they all look inward to a godly, righteous kind of love. And all these things are worthy of our pursuit, right? They're worthy. They're worthy of our attention. They're worthy of our investment, right? We understand that we are to grow in these things. But I want to close with this. This is where the gospel comes in. As worthy as all of these things are of pursuit, we will fall short. We will inevitably fall short if we fail to see each one by Christ. So a quick list here. I just want us to draw our attention to our Lord this morning, right? That's why we're here, to focus on Him. So Christ, even as a perfect Savior, demonstrated perfect faith in the Father, perfect trust in Him, though being God a very God, set the perfect example of what it is to believe, to trust God with everything. Example of that, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. What an, what an example of trusting in the provision of the Father. In 1 Peter 2.23 we read, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Right? Moral excellence. Right? Christ excels in moral excellence. We do not know moral excellence apart from Christ putting it on, putting it on display. The ultimate virtuous man. The supreme example of justice and righteousness. The supreme example of all that is praiseworthy and worthy of honor. That is Jesus in His life and ministry. Even in His death and resurrection. Even at his, in His current reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. He remains the supreme example of what it is to be morally excellent. Right? It is in Christ, right? Christ, you think about who, knew the, who knows the Father better than anyone else. Christ is our, is our example of what it is to know God. And it is in the flesh that He made the Father known to us. To see Him is to see the Father. So Christ is, a, is the model of what it is to have true knowledge of God. It is Christ who showed and continues to show self-control. Meaning that the Lord Jesus always acts consistent with His own righteous and perfectly holy nature. He perfectly sustains the universe and He exercises perfect sovereign control in His continual work to make all things subject to Himself. That is perfect self-control. We never find the Lord Jesus acting out, right? Or doing that which is contrary to His character, or acting out of control. He's always in control. It is Christ who demonstrated perseverance, the example of endurance in Hebrews 2.12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross, right? And His enduring the cross became salvation for us. You think about this too, this, this little nuance when it comes to the perseverance of Jesus. He endures us, right? <laughs> he endures us, not merely putting up with us, but He remains with us as we become like Him. He is patient with us through all of our failures, through our times of unbelief, through our struggles with sin, and that He never leaves or forsakes us. Christ endures. And He endures with us. Christ demonstrates godliness. No other man's life was so saturated by goodness, by God-likeness, by a life characterized by living for God's glory. Christ is our ultimate example. You want to know what godliness looks like? Look to Christ. Christ also demonstrating brotherly kindness. I think of his relationship with his disciples, calling them friends and brothers, making known to them the will of the Father, bringing them and us into his fold and providing everything we need. That Christ truly is our faithful elder brother. Finally, and most significantly, Christ demonstrated love. 
loved fully, loved, loved, loved fully in terms of his devotion and delight in the Father, right? and also demonstrated God's love for his people. See, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, the fact that God's love is so clearly and beautifully expressed in the fact that Jesus was willing to lay down His life for us and be the very thing that satisfied God's just wrath against us. So that God is no longer angry at us. We are no longer under sin's condemnation. Why? Because of Christ's supreme act of love. The very reason that we can preach, for God so loved the world, is because Christ so loved God. That's why we can proclaim that message in full confidence. So that is, that is the music of spiritual growth. That is the song of our hearts, right? With all of its incentive, investment, and instruments. These are the, these are the instruments we play, and by God's grace, friends, the instruments we will master as the Holy Spirit continues to sanctify us and conform us to the image of Christ. So be encouraged. Your sanctification is as guaranteed as your justification. (laughs) So put your hope in that. But ultimately, put your hope in Christ who perfectly exemplifies all of these things and more. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love and kindness to us. That even as we desire to see these things cultivated in our lives, um, Again, as a, as, a, as a beautiful uh, symphony of, of, uh, of Your work in us. Really a song of salvation that we can sing to You. And with it, the melody of love. Love which finds its ultimate delight in You, but love that devotes itself to You as well. All, Father, in, in reference of what Christ has done for us, we, we have no model, we have no standard of what this is unless unless it is expressed to us in Christ our Lord. And we thank You that He is that example to us, but even more of an example, Father, He is, he is our salvation. Right? He is our Lord. He is, he is everything that we need, and we desire to bring Him honor in Christian growth, Lord. To, not so that we can be proud or self-sufficient, but so that we can, even in our own experience as believers be instrumental in pointing others to him that we can say yet not i but through christ in me it is his power at work in us and that we want to be like him lord we ask that you would refresh our faith as well these things are worthy of pursuit but we cannot pursue them in unbelief we want to believe in you we want to believe that you are for us and not against us that we want to believe Um, in Christ rightly (laughs) to believe what the Scripture tells us of Him, of what He is and who He is, and that He is no less than that. So with that as our foundation, Father, may we pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, that we will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we can only do it because of Him. We pray that You would be honored in that, and that we can rejoice in that together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.